Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I'm the host of the show, but today I am joined by a special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Um, We've got a lot to cover in this episode. Uh, Before we get into all of the detailed, hard-hitting scientific presentations, start with a couple announcements here. Uh, If you enjoy the show and you want to support it, we would, of course, appreciate that. You can do that in a number of different ways. You can like, rate, and subscribe wherever you happen to get podcasts. You could go to BulkSupplements.com and use our discount code SBSPOD for a 5% discount. You could subscribe to the Mass Research Review, which we are co-authors of, or you could download the MacroFactor Diet app, which does have a free trial. That is the diet app that we designed with a very talented team of people, and we'd love for you to check it out because we think you might like it. Uh, Before we get into the content for today, um, just kind of a, a warning here, daylight savings time has wrecked me like (laughs) the clocks moved i guess like a day or two ago and it just hits me so hard like i'm a creature of habit so when the clocks shift an hour it throws me off so like today i'm delirious i was doing my morning emails and made so many insane they weren't even typos i was just writing words that didn't make sense and i would catch it before i sent it but yeah my brain is just not working so everything from this point forward uh, for this episode, I'm sorry. Uh, my brain just doesn't work today. I don't know how you're doing, but oh, I, I'm, I'm not doing, good. I'm doing great. One of the advantages of not having a schedule, really not having a circadian rhythm at all, is I'm just I, I'm never op- operating. I assume at peak efficiency, but by extension, I don't even notice when my schedule gets thrown off because it doesn't it doesn't exist. So I, I think I'm taking the like Taleb anti-fragile approach here um, by just, you know, making my life probably 40% worse on a day-to-day basis, but then being unaffected by perturbations like this. So, yeah, that's a nice type of immunity to build up. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, today I'm just out of it. So uh, I'm sure I'll misspeak 30 or 40 times in the next hour, but we're going to push ahead anyway. Speaking of sleep and building immunity uh we're two minutes into the episode and already getting off track but have you ever heard of the documentary film hands on a hard body no all right all right so it's about uh it's about a contest i think in arkansas every year um so this is a documentary an actual documentary um where because we we do often say that when we're talking about just complete bullshit yeah yeah Yeah. um so yeah it's just kind of like i I guess like a slice of life human interest documentary where there's a contest every year where um there's a truck and people who want to win the truck for free just show up have to keep a hand on it and whoever can keep a hand on it the longest wins okay Uh, and, and i think i think they get like maybe a 30 minute or like a 10 minute break every six hours or something to use the bathroom, but like they can't sleep. They can't lay down. They have to keep a hand on this truck. And so the contest runs like three, four days. Like people go multiple days without sleeping because they really want to win this truck. And in the documentary, there was one particular character who had pulled two consecutive all-nighters before the uh before the contest started good plan because he believed that uh you could build up an immunity to sleep deprivation (laughs) and so by going two nights without sleep before the contest even started he wasn't putting himself at a disadvantage he was getting a head start on his competition (laughs) at, at building up an immunity to sleep deprivation and uh he did not win Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, uh, who, who like, could have predicted that? It, it's like doing a sport where <laughs> where dehydration is a major concern. You're like, I'm going to go ahead and restrict water for a few days just to get a, a leg up. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we, we both have a habit of whenever we're talking about a very stupid, untrue thing, we call it a documentary. <laughs> so it's hard for me to seriously reference documentaries anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, so 
you're doing better than I am, but I, I do think I'll recover soon. Good. Um, all right. So Road to Athens, I'll start. Uh, nothing too interesting here, but I'm really excited. Uh, I'm going to start cross training pretty soon with a little bit of stand up paddle boarding. And I can't wait. I, I'm, I'm excited to have some updates with that once that starts. I'm just waiting for the lake to kind of get warm enough to actually go out there and not like have hypothermia. But mm-hmm. you might recall, I talked a lot about swimming um, in the summer, in the fall. What I was trying to do is basically learn how to swim so that I could do paddle boarding this upcoming year and not fear that I would like drown from it. So I- I'm really excited to uh, to start that. And it should be within the next uh the next month or so, I think I'll be able to get out there. But Sweet. other than that, really no updates. Uh, what about you? How is the road to the stage? Yeah, honestly, no no real updates for me either. Uh, weight's been pretty flat for the past week or so. I think the low 230s, which is where I am now, is treating me about the same way the low 240s did before, just basically plateauing for a while and, you know, hopefully we'll break through soon. Um Assuming physics still works, uh, as long as I keep sticking to my diet, eh, things will start moving again. So nothing to report this week, but not too concerned about it. Good stuff. All right. So obviously, uh, last episode, I had a short segment that lasted basically the whole episode. It, uh, it really got away from me there, but, uh, we want to make sure that you're able to do your research roundup with no interruptions. Uh, take as much time as you need. It looks like you're going to be talking about walking and health. I will. Yeah, yeah. So um, ho- hopefully this doesn't run quite as long as the intended short segment on the last episode. Yeah. Because uh, I-, I do have a very good to play us out bit of content, and I don't want to feel rushed when we get there. Um but yeah, so I, I'm going to be talking about walking a little bit uh, specifically. So we published a research brief in Mass, which we then shared to the website and Instagram, uh, maybe like a month ago, month or two ago, thereabouts. And I'm pretty sure we talked about it on the podcast already. Uh, but just a little refresher before diving into the actual meat of this segment. So it was a research brief uh, based on a recent meta-analysis by Gietti and colleagues. The title was Daily Step Count and All-Cause Mortality, a Dose-Response Meta-Analysis of Prospective Cohort Studies. Uh, so there were seven studies included in this, and what a pro- prospective cohort study means is that you don't have an intervention, you basically just recruit a group of subjects, and then moving forward in time, you just track what you're interested in about them. So in this case, uh, you're keeping track of step counts and you're keeping track of mortality. Like, are they alive or dead? Um, So there were seven prospective cohort studies in the meta-analysis with a total of 28,000 participants, and about 2,300 of them died uh, over the course of their respective studies' uh, time span. And the researchers found that the rates of all-calls mortality were about 12% lower per 1,000 steps per day. Uh, So essentially what that means is that if you take, all else being equal, if you take about 12,000 steps per day more than another individual, you're about 12% less likely to die uh, in that year. So uh, one thing to note, I unintentionally used causal language in that past sentence. I shouldn't have. This This was an epi study. There was no intervention. wasn't an RCT. Um, so you can't necessarily use causal language. It's just that walking 1,000 steps more per day was associated with a 12% uh, lower, lower mortality rate. Um, and also, I think it's worth, it's worth noting the actual magnitudes in that study because, uh, like, so just to contextualize it, that was 12% per 1,000 steps per day. Um, and just to use another uh, kind of point of reference for how large of a reduction that is, um, smoking seems to be associated with 70 to 80% higher rates of all-cause mortality. So in effect, walking about an extra seven 8,000 steps per day is is associated with a comparable reduction in all-cause mortality rates as smoking is associated with an increase in all-cause mortality rates. So that's, 
you know, all said and told, a pretty big difference, uh, I would say. So anyway, uh, I think we've talked about this on a previous episode, um, and since that episode was published, uh, and also since we shared this on the website and on Instagram, there has been a single relatively common criticism that has come up, uh, and or criticism slash line of skepticism, which we like on this show, we like skepticism, uh, and that is that the findings of that meta-analysis may be mere association. In other words, it's showing that walking more is associated with lower rates of alcohol's mortality, but it could simply be that people who are generally healthier do tend to walk more. Like if someone might already be in the beginnings of a disease state, they may not be as active. Uh, so, you know, you're, you're basically finding that walking as a reflector of general health may be associated with lower rates of alcohol's mortality, but that doesn't necessarily mean that walking itself is a causal mechanism to reduce alcohol's mortality. Uh, there's a difference between saying people who walk more die less, and if you walk more, you will be less likely to die. Those are two similar but slightly different statements. Uh, and so that was a concern that was raised by quite a few people about uh, that that meta-analysis that we wrote about. Um, so anyway, yeah, let's, let's dive into that. Um, I'm going to talk about some other intervention, well, quite a few systematic reviews and or meta-analyses uh, in one review paper um, looking at randomized control trials, uh, Inter prospective intervention studies, um, and just like various lines of evidence suggesting that the influence of walking on risk factors of alcohol's mortality and alcohol's mortality itself, uh, that that is likely an actual causal relationship and not just mere association. So, you know, basically just providing more evidence to beef up something that we've previously talked about. So, uh, to start with, um, there was a meta-analysis of randomized control trials by Murphy and colleagues. The title was The Effect of Walking on Fitness, Fatness, and Resting Blood Pressure, a meta-analysis of randomized control trials. And one thing to note uh, before really diving into this, all of these studies and metas that I'm going to talk about will be linked in the show notes if you would like to check them out. So anyway, uh, this meta included 24 randomized control trials where walking was the only intervention in the trial, uh, and it found a significant reduction in weight and body fat percentage, and a significant improvement in VO2 max just from walking interventions. And it should be noted the magnitudes of changes weren't particularly large uh, in, in the studies included in this meta. You know, we're talking about uh, over, over the course of the interventions, maybe losing like a kilo or two of fat, small reduction in body fat percentage. I think VO2 went up by like three, four mLs per kg. So we're not talking about turning people into marathon runners. Uh, but a meta-analysis of RCTs finding uh, improvements in, in three different markers that tend to be associated with longevity. And again, that, that is in RCTs. Uh, moving on, a systematic review at, by Lee and colleagues. The title is The Effect of Walking Intervention on blood pressure control, a systematic review. Uh, so to be included in the systematic review, it needed to be a randomized control trial with a non-intervention control group to compare against, and study samples needed to be uh, people 16 or older, and the intervention needed to predominantly focus on walking, and blood pressure needed to be an outcome. So uh, this is looking at a risk factor for uh, specifically cardiovascular disease risk, which uh, is obviously a predictor of mortality. So there were 27 RCTs included in this systematic review. Since this wasn't a meta-analysis, it wasn't necessarily looking for kind of a pooled uh, effect estimate, but just basically looking at the RCTs, just the literature on this topic, what are some trends that you see emerging? So of the, 27, uh, of the 27 trials included in this systematic review, uh, nine of them found an effect of the walking intervention on blood pressure, uh, a beneficial effect, and the walking intervention tends to be effective from studies with a larger sample size, and a beneficial effect of walking on blood pressure tended, uh, tended to come from studies that employed a moderate to high-intensity walking intervention, 
and a longer intervention period. So that's that's a quote from the abstract. Basically, uh, <laughs> basically they found that studies that had more statistical power were more likely to show a positive effect. So you know you're not talking about a night and day difference on blood pressure control if it's a relatively short term, relatively small study uh, where people aren't doing that much more walking. Uh, walking a bit more probably isn't going to have much of a measurable effect on blood pressure, but the longer studies where people walked a bit more, sample sizes were, were a bit larger, did tend to pretty reliably find improvements on blood pressure from walking interventions. Um, and that can be a generally important note as you're reviewing literature because, um, you know, there was a recent study that Helms talked about mm -hmm. in, in mass. Mm-hmm where some researchers were looking at time-restricted feeding over the course of like, I think it was like eight weeks. Mm -hmm. And within the eight-week study, they were like, oh, this is great. No impact on fat-free mass or lean mass secretion. Looks like the two are more or less interchangeable for that outcome. But obviously, eight weeks is a really short span of time. Or, you know, even if it were 12 weeks, it, you know, the longer you do an intervention, if you continuously apply it, the more those groups have an opportunity to diverge and yeah. separate. And so those researchers checked in on the same participants or a subsample of them a year later, mm -hmm. and they did see divergent effects for fat-free mass. And so you have to be really cautious with some of these shorter studies. You might see one or two studies that are short and say, oh, it looks like this intervention didn't work. Then you look at a meta and say, well, no, they were getting there. And then when we look at the longer studies, we see where they were, where they were headed, what kind of a trajectory they were on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, so moving on, uh, a meta-analysis by Richards or by Richardson uh, and colleagues, a meta-analysis of pedometer-based walking interventions and weight loss. Uh, so this was a meta looking at randomized control trials and prospective cohort studies uh, with pedometer-based interventions. So uh, it, it wasn't all RCTs included in this meta. There were some prospective cohort studies, but there's still an intervention here. Like they're giving people pedometers and encouraging them to walk more. Um, so that that's still uh, stronger evidence than just purely just a purely observational uh, perspective cohort study. Uh, so nine studies met the inclusion criteria for this meta, um, and they found that there was a small effect of pedometer-based walking interventions on weight loss. Uh, across the nine studies, people lost about one and a quarter kilos of body mass on average, uh, with longer interventions being associated with greater total weight change, and on average, participants lost about 0.05 kilograms per week during the interventions. Uh, and one thing I'll note is that that doesn't sound like a particularly large change, but, you know, we're talking about an intervention that has cumulative effects over time. And over time, uh, during people's adult lives, on average, what you tend to see is body weights gradually drifting up over time. So if a pedometer-based walking intervention can basically have the opposite effect, you know, you're not seeing a night and day difference where people lose 20 kilograms right away, but instead of a gradual trend up over time, you're seeing a gradual trend down over time. Uh, that is, in, in all likelihood, a uh, positive effect that is likely to improve general health. Uh, then moving on, a systematic review and meta-analysis by Robertson and colleagues, Walking for Depression or Depressive Symptoms, a systematic review and meta-analysis. Uh, so there were eight trials included here. Um, they found that walking interventions uh, improved um, depression-related symptoms with a mean pooled effect size of 0.86, which is generally considered a large effect. Uh, they did note that there was quite a bit of heterogeneity between the interventions used in the studies they looked at, and the research populations, and the magnitudes of effects observed in those studies. So, you know, <laughs> I would always say uh, when talking about literature like this, don't, we're not psychologists, we're not psychiatrists, don't take anything we say related to mental health as anything approaching a prescription and that is doubly true here because the authors of this meta-analysis themselves 
say like, you know, this, this isn't a one size fits all thing. We don't know what the correct dosage is, seems to depend on the population. But in general, they're finding that uh, walking more tends to have a generally beneficial effect on depression and depressive symptoms. Uh, and, you know, mental health is an important component of overall health. And they're finding in this meta-analysis that walking more tends to help with that as well. Did they happen to, I don't know if you recall, uh, did they happen to point out any particular characteristics um, that seem to be driving some of that heterogeneity? I don't remember for sure because I prepped this segment two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, that, that's my fault. I'll take that. No, that's um, fine. But, you know, one of the things I think about is, you know, certainly I would expect that dose matters mm -hmm. um, where you want to have enough walking that you're, you know, really doing something, but also not so much when we're talking about, you know, mental health outcomes that it becomes a stressor, you know, yeah, that yeah. it's too ambitious a goal and it's kind of stressing you out to try to keep up with the walking prescription. Well, in, in depression itself tends to cause generalized fatigue. So you probably yeah. wouldn't want to be walking so much that you're feeding into that. Yeah. And, and I also wonder how much of the heterogeneity could potentially be related to the walking environment. Um, and, and this is total speculation. Ooh, we're going to get into that. Oh, cool. Okay. Then I won't, I won't jump ahead. Well, in, indirectly, indirectly. Yeah. Cause like what, what I think about is like, if you tell me, Hey, give me, you know, 9,000 steps on this treadmill in a crowded gym pass, yeah. you know, but if you say, Hey, check out this lovely park, do you want to stroll through the woods? Absolutely. I'll do that all day. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to touch on that a little cool. bit later. Uh, I, I'll note, I didn't get too far into the details of this meta-analysis, mostly because since I'm not a mental health professional, uh, I would, I would not have wanted to provide so many details that it began to sound like a prescription. Yeah. Uh, even if I was very explicit that it's not, um, but yeah, I, I, I do think you're probably on the right track there. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, moving on, um, here, here was another meta-analysis of prospective cohort studies, much like the Gietti meta that we started off with, uh, but there, there's an important uh, factor in this that I want to mention. So um, walking and primary prevention, a meta-analysis of prospective cohort studies by Hamer and colleagues. Uh, so basically, this was a meta-analysis looking at prospective cohort studies um, on walking and their influence on cardiovascular disease risk and mortality rates. Uh, and the thing I want to point out here is that uh, there were 18 prospective cohort studies included almost half a million total participants. And here's the important part. Uh, the participants in the, in the prospective cohort studies were free from cardiovascular disease at baseline, and then about 20,000 of them had some form of cardiovascular disease at follow-up. Uh, so the important bit is that these were people who did not have cardiovascular disease at baseline, and the, the criticism was like, well, uh, of the of the Gietti meta, was that like, well, you know, we're seeing that, uh, we're seeing lower rates of all-cause mortality in people who walk more, but maybe that is just a, a proxy for disease state, where people who already have some sort of chronic disease, maybe walk less, and that, uh, inf and that's influencing the mortality rate seen. So in, in this meta-analysis by Hamer and colleagues, the subjects were free of cardiovascular disease at baseline, um, and they were looking at rates at follow-up. And they basically found that uh, walking interventions tended to reduce risks, uh, your risk of developing cardiovascular disease by about 30%, uh, give or take. Um, but yeah, so like I, like I said, that's that's not an RCT. I just wanted to point that out because also a, a meta on prospective cohort studies, but specifically in disease-free individuals at baseline, still finding that uh, walking tended to be associated with, with lower rates of cardiovascular uh, disease origination. Uh, and then, let's see, in terms of potential mechanisms, I would say. Uh, this wasn't a meta-analysis. This this is a uh, a narrative review by Coyle and colleagues, uh, published very recently, 
in Exercise and Sports Science Reviews, if memory serves. Uh, title is Inactivity Causes Resistance to Improvements in Metabolism After Exercise. Uh, this was this was a cool uh, review paper that I'd recommend checking out. Um, basically, what the authors here do is they go through several studies finding that the acute effects, the, the acute metabolic effects of exercise tend to be blunted in people who are more inactive at baseline. So, um, you know, if you put people, if you put people on, on the treadmill for an hour, uh, what you expect to see is increased fat oxidation, reduced plasma triglycerides, better glucose control, et cetera, et cetera. And you do tend to see those things on average, but you tend to see them more reliably and more robustly in people who are just generally more active at baseline, people who uh, spend less total sedentary time or just average more steps per day. And I think in general, you might anticipate to see the opposite. Um, you know, people who are, I, I would say, kind of more relatively untrained, who are less active, you might expect to see larger acute improvements in those variables when you actually make them exercise a little bit. Uh, but it's actually the opposite. So people who have higher rates of baseline activity tend to see larger acute improvements in those metabolic variables after uh, acute uh, aerobic exercise. And so that, that might be a potential mechanism uh, underlying some of these observations. And then finally, uh, this, is, this is kind of the clincher, uh, and I'll note one of the reasons that the criticism, that like, oh, like, you guys are just mistaking correlation with causation. One of the reasons that that criticism of, like, the Stronger by Science content about the meta frustrated me a little bit is the meta that I'm about to talk about was cited in the review on the website. I think a lot of people just miss this. Uh, and, and this will also get to the, um, the circumstances of walking, like you mentioned before. Uh, so title is, is there evidence that walking groups have health benefits, a systematic review and meta-analysis by Hansen and Jones? Uh, and so this was a meta-analysis on, um, on intervention studies with adult walking groups outdoors. So I didn't know that this was such a robust uh, area of research, largely because, like, I don't know, I, I tend to focus on exercise physiology and, and strength stuff and not necessarily, like, public health interventions. But I think this is pretty popular in research, like, in the UK, where, uh, you know, they just <laughs> get a bunch of adults and they're like, hey, why don't you guys get together and walk through the park for a little bit and we'll see if that does anything good. Uh, so there were 42 studies that met the inclusion criteria for this meta-analysis. Uh, and, and like I said, they were all adult subjects, and it was outdoor walking groups. So you, you get together with, you know, maybe half a dozen, a dozen people, and you just stroll through the park for, you know, 30 minutes, an hour, and not a particularly intense pace. And uh, all of the studies uh, included in this meta-analysis lasted for a year or less, so they're relatively short-term studies. Uh, everything I'm about to talk about, you don't necessarily need to do it for five years to start seeing improvements. Uh, so all of the interventions lasted a year or less, uh, and they led to significant decreases in systolic blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure, resting heart rate, body fat percentage, body mass index, total cholesterol, uh, depression scores on a, on a standard like depression symptoms inventory, uh, Increased VO2 max, increased six-minute walk distance, and score on the SF36 physical functioning inventory, which is basically just asking, like, kind of how much you struggle with activities of daily living, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so uh, <laughs> essentially they found that if you get outside with your homies uh, and walk a little bit, not even that much, uh, a few times a week, 30 minutes for an hour, uh, within a year, that can reduce 10 different risk factors for all-cause mortality, which is uh, pretty striking, I think. Um, and like you mentioned, it, I you can't necessarily attribute the findings of this meta-analysis solely to walking. Like There could be a social component, since it was all group-based, 
might be influenced just by getting folks outside a bit more. Um, but the, the bulk of the intervention itself was a walking intervention. Um, so yeah, all of which is to say, uh, I do think that the population level associations we see between walking and all cause mortality, I do think it's far more than mere association. There's a lot of evidence that walking interventions modify known risk factors of mortality, specifically uh, cardiovascular disease mor mortality. Um, and yeah, like it's, it's not just, uh, I don't think it's a mere association. And, uh, the reason I brought up the coil paper, uh, about inactivity causing resistance to acute, uh, metabolic changes post-exercise is I do think, I think one of the reasons that I got a bit of pushback about that meta is I think that a lot of people who exercise quite a bit, um, want to believe that that ticks all of the uh, activity-related boxes when it comes to overall health. Um, and and I, th I think there's a reason that people want to believe that. Like, I want to believe that. I have a sedentary job. I work on a computer. Uh, <laughs> you know, I go for a few walks. I lift weights. I play some basketball. But, I mean, eight hours a day, I'm sitting on my ass uh, reading, writing, typing, whatever. Um, so I, I very much want to think that that is not having deleterious general health effects. It probably is. Um, I don't know what I gain from lying to myself about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I think that's one of the reasons why there was a bit of pushback. Like, um, you know, if you have an office job and you go work out for an hour every day after work, but maybe you're only averaging three, 4,000 steps per day, um, you don't necessarily want to think that cause it takes a while to get steps in, you know, like if you, if you, uh, live in a, a commuter culture where there's not great public transit, uh, you're driving an hour to and from work every day, you work a sedentary job, boom, there's 10 hours of the day gone. Uh, you sleep eight hours a night, boom, there's 18 hours of the day gone. Now you got six hours left. You need to eat some meals. You want to spend some time with loved ones you have some hobbies, uh, and you know, if you want to work in 10,000 steps, it's some, at some point in that process, uh, that aren't facilitated by your lifestyle. Like if you don't live in a walkable city or, or something like that, um, you know, it's going to take a while. Like it's going to take a, a significant time investment to get those steps in. And so it would be great if that wasn't necessary and you could just go to the gym for an hour boom now you've checked all of those boxes um but at least my my read of the literature is that that is not the case uh that just overall general activity levels with step counts being a pretty good proxy for that um does seem to be not only a predictor of of general health and longevity uh but probably a causal factor as well um and yeah, it would be, I would love if that was not the case. Uh, and for, <laughs> for years, I told myself that that wasn't the case. Um, but yeah, as, as I've got into this literature more, I've, uh, unfortunately for myself changed my mind about that. Yeah. And I'm not, um, super deep into this literature, but I am aware of literature that might be a breath of fresh air to people who are a little bit concerned about the time required to mm -hmm. get some of these more ambitious step counts. Like you, you describe the scenario where, you know, you start running out of hours of the day. There aren't that many opportunities to say, I'm going to go walk for 90 minutes mm -hmm. and, and really chip away at this step count. But there's kind of this separate body of literature, which focuses more on just breaking up your sedentary time. Mm -hmm. So even if it's a struggle and, and you can't say, where am I going to clear out two hours to do all this walking? There are likely independent benefits of saying, well, I can't do that. But, you know, at my job, uh, you know, and it depends on your, your work environment and what you do for a living. But there are many sedentary office type jobs where you can say every hour I can take maybe three minutes, mm -hmm. step away from my desk, go to the stairwell 
you know, do a couple flights up and down, go back to my desk. You know, just breaking up instead of having an eight hour block of sedentary time, if you can break that up into eight sedentary one hour blocks with just a little bit of activity in between, that seems to be helpful. You know, to what extent that's going to allow you to hit these type of step counts, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But but it seems like if you're just like, well, what the hell am I going to do? Like, I don't have time. There are ways that you can kind of divide this up throughout the day and at least try to break up those really extended blocks of sedentary time. Yeah, yeah. And I, th- I think that, um, so one, like you mentioned, there's research on that. But two, I mean, like anecdotally... Um, I think a lot of people experience that when you go from college to work. Because, you know, if you uh, go to college on a campus where maybe you're taking classes all day, but classes are 45 minutes long, and then you got to walk, depending on the size of the campus, uh, five to 10 minutes across campus to go to your next class, that's functionally what you're doing. Like, you're, you're very sedentary for the better part of an hour, and then, you know, you're somewhat active for five, 10 minutes. Uh, and I mean, I can tell you for myself when I got out of college, uh, even though the total time I spent work, the total time I spent working did increase, but it wasn't like a huge, just, you know, now, now I'm sedentary for four times as much time. It, it, it really was like, Hey, total sedentary time is comparable, but now I, I don't have these kind of built in hourly breaks to stretch my legs and walk around a little bit. Man, over the span of like six months, I started feeling so much more like shit and just so much older, um, which is funny to say looking back on it because I feel so much older now than I did yeah. at, uh, at 22. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people experience that just from going from a college campus to a sedentary job. Like, Total sedentary time may not change all that much, but once you remove those hourly breaks to stretch your legs, I think a lot of people do just kind of feel worse for it. Um, so yeah, you can reverse that uh, if your if your job and situation allows for it. Uh, just every hour, getting up, stretching your legs a little bit, um, doing something slightly active, walking around if you can. I gotta say that's one of the things. That is, I think that overall the reduction in in smoking uh, in our society probably a good thing, but one one of the things that was probably pretty clutch when everyone smoked is just like half of your office would need to take hourly smoke breaks, and so then like if you don't smoke, you you could be like, oh man, yeah, I'm going out to burn one, and then just like do a lap around the block. I don't think you can really get away with that as much anymore because not as many people smoke. All of which is to say, convince your coworkers to start smoking again for your health. <laughs> That's really good advice. Uh, I'm glad you were so cautious about giving psychology advice, but then you're having people convince all their coworkers to I, smoke. I, I am not convincing anyone to smoke. I'm telling someone else to step beyond their okay. scope of practice. Fair I, enough. I mean, we're, we, we live in North Carolina. Like, this is a state built on tobacco. Yeah, um, for the good of the economy, we kind of need yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, we, <laughs> I, I used to be so spoiled with trying to get uh, non-exercise physical activity because like I couldn't, I couldn't afford a campus parking pass. Mm-hmm. Um, like they're, they're quite expensive uh, where we went to grad school, uh, but the campus was beautiful. It's a very... Uh, a very mild climate most seasons. Like, you know, you could walk most of the year without feeling like it's frigid outside. Mm-hmm. So, man, I would walk to work. I'd walk home from work. I'd walk to the gym. I would, you know, you're on campus, so you have to walk to class, walk to the lab. All your meetings, you're walking. I used to get so many steps without even thinking about it and then went through the same thing where it's like, oh, now I just work from my apartment on a computer. And, man, it was so hard to try to get even a fraction of the steps I used to get. And the implications for that, I mean, you know, you went through all the meta analyses of all these different health related parameters and even things related to uh, mental health outcomes. Um, But it's not just that, you know, so like last episode, I talked a lot about energy audits and I've had several one-on-one calls where I, I chat with somebody, we do an energy audit and 
more often than not, the first piece of advice I give, you know, we'll, we'll do some things with the diet and with some tracking changes and things like that. But in most cases, the first thing I, I identify is we have a lot of sedentary time and very minimal physical activity outside of the gym. So one of my first recommendations is let's see how frequently we can do a little bit of exercise, like non-exercise physical activity And let's see if we can push this step count a little bit higher. So this stuff relates to body composition as well, um, especially when you find people who are really struggling with some of that stubborn fat loss. This can be the type of intervention that gets you over the hump and gets things moving uh, in the right direction. And I believe if memory serves, I believe several months ago, if not years ago, Helms covered a paper uh, looking at athletes, um, who are, who were currently engaged in competitive sport. And even among those athletes, I believe their, uh, their sedentary time was correlated with some of their body composition outcomes. So, you know, like you said, a lot of people like to believe because it would be extremely convenient. Listen, I do my hour a day in the gym, you know, four or five days a week. And I, I, that should have me covered. But mm-hmm. even in these really competitive athletes, there was still an additive effect of some of this uh, sedentary time that, you know, we could break that up outside of the gym by having some of this extra activity. And another factor, uh, aside from body composition and, and energy balance, um, I remember back in the day, before I was even involved with Stronger by Science, you had an article that touched on uh, how in some cases, a lack of aerobic capacity could potentially uh, interfere with one's ability to train effectively and recover effectively from training. Mm -hmm. Is that still a perspective that you hold? Like, do you think that relates to this conversation? I I think it does. Um, I I think that it. Yeah. So I, I two things. One, I I definitely think it relates to recovery. Um, so generally being active or even like doing some like intentional low intensity aerobic training, uh, can can help with um with like sympathetic versus parasympathetic nervous system modulation. Um, like if, if you do a really hard strength training workout and then you're, you're very sedentary afterwards um, for some people, sometimes like your sympathetic nervous system can kind of stay a little bit more keyed up, which um, like, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to make too sweeping of claims, but that, that can make it take a little bit longer to kind of shift into relax and recover mode whereas like if you lift and then maybe just like go for a walk or something like that it does help bring you back down um which might be good from a recovery perspective as far as the like work capacity stuff goes i i do think that that's mostly in the domain of people who are already like quite strong um mostly just because like the the energy cost of a set of training you do is pretty dependent on the amount of weight on the bar. So like if you squat 250 pounds for 10 reps, that burns about half as much energy as squatting 500 for 10 reps. Uh, And then if you're crazy strong and can squat 750 for 10 reps, that's burning like three times as much energy in about the same period of time as squatting 250 for 10 reps. Uh, And when you actually do that math, you can... You can wind up, uh, if you're strong enough, you can be burning through energy at a rate that is comparable comparable to like sprinting 200, 400 meters. And, you know, so if, if you're not that strong yet and you're like, oh man, like I can, I can do a set of 10 squatting at like 135 and like, I feel fine afterwards. Like why, why do the strong people at my gym seem dead after they do 10s? It's like, yeah, head out to a track, sprint 400 meters. Like, that's that's what they feel like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that lack of aerobic fitness might become a bottleneck on how hard you can train once you get strong enough, um, which, which probably does describe a, a non-trivial amount of our listeners. But I, I don't think most people acutely need to worry about that all that much. Yeah. 
Yeah. Cool. But yeah, when, when it comes to walking and just kind of building up that base of aerobic fitness and getting more physical activity, and if you can add on top of that, doing it outside in a lovely environment with people you enjoy spending time with, uh, there's such a wide range of benefits. You know, it's one of those things that there's so much to gain from it. Uh, and as long as it can be feasibly implemented, you know, it, it's kind of a win-win situation. For sure. All right. So before we wrap up the show, I have a very brief uh, answer that I want to give to a listener question. This actually came from the Macro Factor group. We have a Facebook group um, where Macro Factor users uh, ask all sorts of questions and support each other. It's a really nice group. A lot, lot of really positive, helpful people in there. The question was, uh, how much should I stress over a pre-bed protein feeding? And this is a common thing. A lot of times people will say, I got to the end of the day. Uh, I was pretty close to my calorie target. Uh, my protein was pretty much met for the day, but like, should I be carving out extra room so I have a, a protein feeding right before bed. And I think probably the best single resource for this is a re review paper by Snyders and colleagues uh, published in 2019. I'll link it in the show notes here. It was called The Impact of Pre-Sleep Protein Ingestion on the Skeletal Muscle Adaptive Response to Exercise in Humans, colon, an update. Uh, and the biggest thing that really stuck out to me in this review is that there is surprisingly not that much longitudinal research on pre-bed protein feedings. And the research we do have, there, there are, are quite a few studies that have a pretty key limitation th that has a huge, uh, a huge impact on how we interpret those findings. So there was a paper in 2015 by the same author group, uh, Snyder's and colleagues, and um, the, the title of the paper was Protein Ingestion Before Sleep Increases Muscle Mass and Strength Gains During Prolonged Resistance Type Exercise Training in Healthy Young Men. And so they, they gave it away there. Basically, um, the nighttime protein, the pre-bed protein um, uh, intervention was 27.5 grams of protein. It was a mixture of casein and casein hydrolysate. Um, but the really important thing, so obviously over 12 weeks of lifting, they found these benefits for muscle mass. Uh, they found these benefits for strength gains, but the interventions were not protein matched and they were not energy matched. And so the, the group that was getting this extra protein at bed, they or right before bed, it was bumping them from 1.3 grams per kilogram per day, or that, that was the protein intake in the placebo group. Uh, but the the pre-bed protein group, they were eating like 1.9 grams per kilogram per day. Um, so so there was a big discrepancy between the groups in terms of total protein intake. Um, and so basically what they were really looking at is, does giving people below the, the typical optimal range, does giving them extra protein and extra calories help with gaining muscle, gaining strength? That's very different from, hey, should I be shifting more protein to a pre-bed feeding or adding more protein feedings uh, to the day. Uh, there was a study by Antonio and colleagues that I'll link in the show notes, uh, where you know they, they investigated this pre uh, pre bed protein feeding, uh, but they did it differently. So they looked at changes in fat free mass gains. One group was getting protein supplemented in the evening. The other was supplementing the same amount of protein, same calories in the morning. And they did not find statistically significant differences. Uh, they they did find differences that I guess leaned in favor of the uh, the evening protein feeding. So they gained 1.2 kilograms of fat free mass, whereas the group getting protein in the morning gained 0.4 kilograms. But I mean that's that's not. I mean it wasn't statistically significant. And when you look at typical. Uh, body composition measurement devices, that's really not enough where you'd say, hey, there's got to be something here. I mean, that that's well within the range of, of just kind of measurement error, sampling error, things like that. There was a paper by Joy and colleagues, which I'll link below, um, where they found no significant differences in muscle mass uh, or the gains in muscle mass following 10 weeks of lifting. Um, and, and basically, they were looking at uh, again, comparing nighttime versus daytime supplementation uh, with casein protein. Uh, there were, it was a pretty small sample, but again, 
it was another instance where looking at giving the same protein supplement morning versus before bed, it just didn't seem to have a particularly notable effect. So quick conclusions if you are um, wondering about this idea of pre-bed protein. Um, you know, it's a great opportunity to get a protein feeding right before bed, but the research would not indicate that there's anything particularly special about nighttime when it comes to protein. We just need to make sure that we get enough discrete protein feedings throughout the day. And there is some research, some very applied research, suggesting that when you jump from two sufficient protein boluses to three in a given day, there are some benefits there when it comes to strength adaptations and gaining fat-free mass and muscle mass. So I think you can make a really good evidence-based argument, not just based on mechanisms, but based on applied evidence, that you're better off getting at least three protein feedings that are adequate in size compared to only two of them. But there's also research showing that when we jump up from three to six, there's not a particularly large difference. So from my perspective, I think if you're only getting two protein feedings throughout the day, you probably will benefit from getting a third protein dose that's at least 0.25, maybe 0.3 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass. Um, whether or not that's coming right before bed doesn't seem to be that critical. You just want to get at least three protein servings that are spread throughout the day. And another conclusion relates more to protein selection. Um, one of the things I find really interesting is that people get really, um, really into the the rate of protein digestion when they talk about this pre-bed time window. Um, and, and people will say, well, you got to go with the slow digesting protein uh, because it's it's before bed and you need those amino acids to stay elevated overnight so that you can do more protein synthesis overnight. And but, as we all know, casein is the most slowly digesting protein in existence, is it not? Uh, it is not. What? Yeah, it's pretty, pretty incredible. But Are you telling me that the last decade of supplement marketing has been has been misleading me. I I'm not I'm not telling you anything, but that sounds accurate to me. <laughs> um, yeah. So protein digestion speed. Everybody says, well, weighs fast. Casein is slow. Take casein before bed. There's really not strong evidence to suggest that casein is special as a pre-bed protein source. Like you said, it's not that slow on the spectrum of proteins, it's just slower than whey, which is a very fast protein in terms of digestion and absorption speed. So the whole casein thing, there's not really great evidence to suggest that you'd be better off with pre-bed casein versus pre-bed whey or pre-bed egg protein, which is actually way slower in terms of digestion speed than, than casein. So that's one thing to keep in mind. But I also kind of push back against the premise. Um, so one of the kind of our mechanistic understanding of muscle protein synthesis is that uh, when we ingest dietary protein uh, and we have a dose large enough to maximize muscle protein synthesis, muscle protein synthesis, uh, those rates are going to spike and then they're going to start to taper off. And the rate at which they taper off does not seem to, to be dependent on the persistent uh, level of blood amino acid levels. Yeah. You know, it, they, they, there seems to be some kind of temporal component where even if um, you know, blood levels of amino acids remain very high, protein synthesis is going to spike and then fall regardless of those amino acid levels. Um, it's, it's not like if we just have a sustained level of, you know, a slower kind of rate of appearance that we're going to prolong that muscle protein synthesis response to a meaningful degree. So I kind of push back against this idea that this is the one window where we have to really micromanagement or where we have to really micromanage that in terms of, um, managing muscle protein synthesis itself, like the, the whole time course of digestion and absorption uh, that, that doesn't seem very uh, compelling to me as an argument. Now, some people might say, well, you're, you're ignoring muscle protein breakdown. You need to focus more on that. But, you know, you could look at other research comparing fast and slow proteins and, you know, the effect on net muscle protein accretion seems to be pretty similar with the fast versus the slow uh, protein sources in many cases. They just follow a slightly different time course, you know, so... 
You could look at a really fast digesting protein consumed in a fasted state with no previous meals and say, okay, there's a huge spike in protein synthesis. Uh, you know, all of that kind of muscle remodeling and protein accretion happens over a quicker time course. Looking at the slower proteins, the initial spike in muscle protein synthesis might be delayed. It might not be quite as high, but looking at the total net protein accretion over the next, you know, six, seven, eight hours, it just doesn't seem to matter that much. But probably the biggest reason that I don't like to micromanage protein sources is related to one of the, the kind of details I included in that previous statement. I mentioned consumed in a fasted state, you know, with basically with no other foods, no other beverages. That's really important because um, this conversation becomes a lot less exciting. The conversation about protein sources, when you recognize that digestion speed is going to be impacted by previous meals, it's going to be impacted by co-ingestion of other nutrients. So like, even if you wanted to really stress over your protein sources, um, and I don't think you should when you look at the direct studies comparing whey versus casein longitudinally, uh, studies comparing different like titrated doses of a, a mixture of whey and casein to modulate the digestion speed. When you look at egg whites versus egg yolks and how those have different digestion speeds, but ultimately have similar body comp changes over time. I don't think we should be worried about those in the first place. But then when you consider the fact that like whatever you ate at 6 p.m. is going to impact digestion speed for what you have at 9 p.m. before bed. And if instead of having just a whey shake or a casein shake, you also have some source of fat and carbohydrate and fiber with it. All of that stuff about digestion speed gets altered in a way that is context dependent. So the short version of this is if pre-bed is an opportunity for you to go from insufficient protein feedings to adequate protein feedings, you know, if that's what it takes to get you up to that third, you know, sufficiently sized dose for the day, great. Uh, or if you struggle to meet your daily protein goal and a pre-bed uh, protein feeding helps you get to that daily goal, again, that's fantastic. I don't think we need to be hyper worried or stressed over the pre-bed feeding opportunity. It's a great opportunity, but there's no evidence to suggest that it is a extremely unique opportunity for supporting uh, body comp changes. And all of the uh, arguments about the perfect pre-bed protein dose, um, I think there, there's insufficient evidence to support casein as this like perfect pre-bed protein. Uh, and I think the general premise is really weakened when you consider the fact that you are still digesting probably multiple meals from earlier in the day. So the digestion speeds are going to be heavily impacted by other factors. So hopefully that wraps, uh, wraps up that question. And now to play us out, uh, Greg, I understand that you've got a segment that you're excited about, uh, some really terrific content. Yes. Uh, so... I'm sure many listeners of this podcast want to know more information about the one and only host of this podcast, Mr. Eric Trexler, yeah. um, and a, a intrepid reporter named Anne for the, uh, as best I can tell, research-based website factsbuddy.com was also interested in, uh, in, in data and information about Eric. So she put together a, a really nice profile of him based on, I, I can only imagine, very in-depth sourcing, government documents, tax records, et cetera, et cetera, um, to, to really help you get to know all of the intimate details uh, about Eric's life. So she, she reached out to me for an interview, but I declined because I, I really enjoy living a very private life. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that. Yeah. Uh, so okay, uh, Eric, Eric, Trex, Eric Trexler's bio uh, looks to be exactly what is printed on his bio on the Stronger by Science website, so I, I think I know the source for that. Uh, Eric's age. Uh, Eric was born in the United States, but he loves to keep his personal life secretive, hence Trexler has not mentioned any details concerning his exact birth details to the public. Uh, I just love that wording. He, he loves to keep his personal life secretive. Not just he chooses to do it. He loves no. he, he get He gets off on secrecy, folks. It's, it's a thing. I, I yeah. like to withhold information. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Eric Trexler height. Uh, Eric is a man of above average stature. 
Uh, True. Trexler stands at a height of five foot eleven inches. Um, and yeah, so that's a good thing to know. If you've ever seen a picture of Eric at like a conference or something with other people in the fitness industry, and you've gotten the idea that he may be slightly shorter than average, that's actually incorrect. Most people don't know this. The vast majority of people in the fitness industry are at least like six four, six five. Um, but yeah, Eric is is five eleven. Based especially on... natural bodybuilding, there's a lot of very tall people. Oh yeah, huge huge people. Well, I mean, it's it's the classic decision uh, early in people's lives. Like, am I good enough to make it to the NBA, or do I veer off and do natural bodybuilding? Yeah. Um, let's see what's some other good stuff. Education seems to be accurate. Uh, yeah, let's just let's just jump to the money shot. If you've ever wondered how much money you can make by by founding and being the one and only host of the first and only fitness podcast. Uh, let's see. Trexler is a PhD, pro bodybuilder, researcher, and coach correspondent. Therefore, Trexler earns a decent a decent salary as a PhD, pro bodybuilder, researcher, and coach, and uh, co owner of Stronger by Science. I. I <laughs> And, you know, so it's worth noting, this isn't all podcast income. He does make pretty good money as a pro bodybuilder. That's that's a good chunk of it. <laughs> we all do. Uh, <laughs> that's why you do natural body. Yeah. I, I hate bodybuilding, but for the money, yeah. I can't I can't so, turn it down. So uh, according to Facts Buddy, and I assume the IRS as well, Trexler's average salary is $721,223 per year. Um so you know it's based on good documented evidence and sources since they have it down to the dollar, uh, which is which is nice. Um, but yeah, so we'll we'll link this in the show notes uh, if you would have any interest in in learning more about Eric. So uh, yeah, check it out. But I I don't want people to get um, incorrect expectations and change their professional goals and and trajectory like. Don't quit your job to become a podcaster because a lot of that, uh, what was that, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars a year? Yeah, a lot of that was because we did it first, mm -hmm. you know. So, like, I, I don't know if, if you'd still get that benefit where you know, I'm sure there the, people who make fitness podcasts now they might only be making like 500, 600 grand a year, yeah, yeah. That's so, true. so I don't want people to miscalculate that expectation and quit their job the moment they hear this. Yeah, but but it is also worth noting. So I I looked to see who else Anne had profiled uh, for for the research based website factsbuddy.com. Um and I, I think it's worth noting how much more money there is in podcasting than say writing best selling books or selling uh, bulletproof coffee. So she also did a profile of Dave Asprey and uh you know, you look at him from the outside and you're like, man, this guy has built an empire for himself. Turns out he actually only makes about 76 grand a year. So, uh, you know, if you're thinking to my to yourself, like, do I hire an agent, um, put together pitches to a major publisher, try to write a couple of best-selling books, or start a podcast? Uh, you know, those those are kind of the two options. You're going to make 10 times as much money starting a podcast. Um so yeah, you you, you got to go for that. Yeah, um, I I'm really, I really appreciate the fact that there's people reporting the real facts <laughs> about uh, my, uh, you know, above average height and very above average wealth. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but given the fact that it is uh, mid March, if if anyone listening works for the IRS, that that income number is not correct. Uh, I, I just think it's important to clarify that before the uh, April tax deadline. Well, that, that's that's total income, counting income <laughs> you've made in the Cayman Islands and Monaco. So yeah. that that is not his taxable income. That's total income. Two very different things. Yeah. Uh, as soon as soon as the Paradise Papers two come out, <laughs> we'll we'll be able to fully unravel the the Trexler economic and business empire. Yeah. Yeah, that website is terrific. We were going through a bunch <laughs> of different uh, noteworthy fitness people last night. Um, and I just cannot fathom where any of that information comes from. Yeah, aside as, from, As far as I can tell, you have the highest income in the entire fitness industry. <laughs> uh, 
the same website has Steffi Cohen making 61 grand a year, which I am positive is incorrect. Uh, yeah, the I, I also Ste- question Steffi and Dave were the two where I was like, yeah, no. <laughs> I, I also question um, the just inability to get my age. I'm sure we've mentioned it <laughs> 70 times on the podcast. Oh, for sure. For and sure. The idea that I live this ultra private life we did a whole series of like 10 fireside chats where it's like, why don't we talk about our personal lives? Yeah. You know, but anyway, uh, yeah. Hard hitting reporting there by Anne and, uh, yeah, we will link it in the show notes and I hope that you don't get a virus from clicking on it. Uh, (laughs) All right. So that does it for this episode. As always, thank you for listening and we'll be back in a week with another one. Thank you for listening to the stronger by science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.